0: All right, no. You all ready for some amazing Megillah analysis? Does not touch it? David, are we, are we live yet? we Yeah? Okay, let's go. The Gemara continues on Daf Yud Gimel Ahmed Aleph. And we are now going to be analyzing, we'll start off with analyzing Mordechai's self-exile, and then for Mordechai's self-exile, we're going to talk about Esther's name change. And then we are going to talk about the rise of a queen. Let's begin with Mordechai. The Gemara says that if you take a look in the Megillah, immediately after describing who Mordechai is and introducing us to Mordechai, which we were informed he is Ish, is Mordechai Hayehudi, right, Ishimini, but Hayehudi, and we talked about the difference between being Israelite and Jewish and where that comes from and what it means. After this, the Gemara goes on to say the following about Mordechai. Once we know who he is, now we know what he's done. The Gemara says, Asher Hagla mi which literally translates as who was exiled from the city of Yerushalayim or went into exile. So the Gemara says the fact that it says asher Haglo mirusholayim Omar rove rove taught us that this is extremely meaningful the fact that it says the way it's worded and asher Haglo" means that golo me may that Mordechai went into exile in a self-imposed fashion he wasn't forced into exile but rather he went into exile. Rashi says, how do we know that Mordechai chose to impose exile on himself? Mm -hmm. So Rashi says, since the scripture, the verse doesn't say, that he was amongst the exile that was exiled. So the whole pasach is, he who was exiled from Jerusalem with the exile that was exiled, Im <speaking in Hebrew> Yehuda, with who who's the king of Yehuda. So since we hear that he was Haglom Yerushalayim, he was exiled from Egypt, and then we say exiled from Egypt, Im <speaking in Hebrew> with the exiles that went, Asher <speaking in Hebrew> Haglasa, that was exiled with Yechanya, who's the king of Yehuda. So Rashi says, it doesn't say, Min <speaking> Asher <Hebrew> It did not say asher haglo mir shalayim. Im hagoylo asher haglo sa im yichanya. It doesn't say min ha-goyla. It says v'ksiv asher haglo im hagoylo. Instead of min it says im hagoylo. So min means he is amongst the exiles. He's one of the exiles. It doesn't say that. Here it says im with the exiles. So when it says with the exiles, that tells you that he really wasn't part of the exile. He joined the exiles. They were being exiled. He went along with them. That's why it says, Asher hagla saw Im rather than Min HaGolah. Min ha-goyla means from amongst. Im means together with. So that's how, that's what Rashi says. That's on, on the simplest superficial level that, that tips us often tells us that Mordechai was not Min ha-goyla. He wasn't part of the exile. Rather, he chose to go Im with the exiles. Jerusalem, mm-hmm. certainly. Yeah, so Mordechai is the head of the Sanhedrin. Okay, but you said something about Egypt, so I'm not. Quite Egypt ends Egypt. Okay. They come back to earth in Egypt, okay. so he was exiled into Babylon. Oh, so, okay. since it says that he was exiled with, rather than not, not, not amongst, but with, Mimashma says <laughs> Rashi, Shele Yisrael, he was not like the rest of the Jewish people, Shegalu Al Korchon who were forcibly exiled. For who, rather, he, golome e he imposed exile upon himself. And you're saying, what? A, a person would choose to leave Yerushalayim? A tzaddik would choose to ex... Who chooses golos? <laughs> you get forced into golos. Who exiles himself? Rashi doesn't spend time explaining that to us, but he just points out, k'mesha osu yirmiyohu. The great prophet Yermio did exactly the same thing. He also exiled himself. And there was, he was golem ayat, until God says to Yirmiyot, go back, go back to Yerushalayim. But without God telling him to go back to Yerushalayim, he imposed exile upon himself. And since we understand that Yirmiyot did this in a righteous way, it also creates a precedent. It's a precedent. Yermio was a very known figure at the time. We don't hear about Mordechai. He's not written up in the scripture at the time of the, the book of Yermio. We don't hear about him in Megillus Echa. We don't hear about Yermio as being exiled in the earlier Golos, the Golos of Yechonia. We hear about Yermio, but in Yermiyo we hear that he also self-imposed exile. Now, of course, this is something that really needs to be understood. So, there's two things that have to be understood. Number one, how are we so certain that Mordechai exiled himself? Number two, it's a very reasonable and fair question to ask: Why would Mordechai exile himself? You know, the Rebbe always used to say that a yid and golos have nothing to do with each other. Golos is hepech mitziyas Yid. it's the opposite of a yid. It's like who runs away from home? You're living at home with your parents. A teenager runs away from home. That's a not a normal situation. It's normal to be with your parents. It's abnormal to run away. Why would you run away? There was still a beis hamigdash standing. It was still functioning. Who leaves the base of Migdash? Who does that? And this is a leader? Ah. So let's answer both questions. So, Firstly, I want to reiterate how Rashi understands this. And then I want to share with you how a number of the other Ishrainim and Achreinim, how they add greater nuance here. We have first the Teisvis, who has a different approach. He adds a different perspective on the analysis of the verse which leads us to the conclusion that Mordechai was not forcibly exiled, but rather selected and chose and self-imposed exile. And then we'll see what some of the Achorinim say. So again, from Rashi's perspective, it's the word, the key here is im or min. Min means as a part of, amongst, and im means together with, which indicates that he attached himself to. There were exiles. Mordechai attached himself to the exiles. He went along with them. It's like a person is going somewhere to say, here yeah, I'll go along with you. This is your trip. This is your journey. This is your thing. I'll go along with you. Murdachai went along with them. The Taisva says, the drashi here is Siv It said Asher The word is hugla. If it would be imposed, it would have said hugla. Imposed upon him. But Rashi says that, that R- Rashi says it's from im and min. Now, why, why does Tazevah say this? So, first of all, there, there are two girsaris. What exactly it says in the Megillah, and it could be that Rashi sticks to the simpler one. There's no question about hugla and hugla. There's a question, but there's no question about im or min. So, it could be Rashi avoids that. Number one. Number two. So, when we when we start to do the the the, the fine tuning of the hugla or the hugla, since there are, there are two different ways of approaching this. You're, you're talking about the pronunciation of a word, of a verb, is much less compelling, it seems, Rashi feels, than im or min. It's not the pronunciation, how a word is pronounced, it's an actual word, it's a different word is being used. It's a much bigger change, changing pronunciation or changing a word, you know, w- which is greater. A different word is, is, is more. So I mean, Rashi sticks to the notion, notion that it's a different word. One could argue that the reason that Taizfis wants to emphasize Asher Hagla. Shagala me'atzme is because the Gemara doesn't say the rest of the words of the Megillah. It doesn't say the Gemara doesn't say im ha-goyla, or min ha'goila. would would tell you if it was im ha-goyla, or min ha-goyla, then Rashi should have said im ha-goyla, or min ha-goyla. But the, the Gemara doesn't say that. The Gemara just says this is a very cryptic Gemara. The Gemara reads over here in simple words: Asher hagla Shalayim, three words: Asher hagla Shalayim." Asher hagla amarava shagala me'atzme. And maybe we could even say that Taisus doesn't argue on Rashi. But maybe Taisus says the drasha is found even in the word Asher Hagla. Of course it's the Im and the Min. But it's even more than the Im and the Min. Besides whether it says, it says He went with them instead of Min amongst. It says Hagla, not Hagla. So in the word itself is, is isn't indicative. Anyway, I don't know if you have to necessarily say the two different approaches. I think it's it's, it's per, perhaps an addition to. Now the Marsha... Has a, uh, adds a different and a deeper understanding, a, more, a greater appreciation, at least in the certitude, that it's not like a nuance, not a little word, it's at a question that Mordechai definitely self-imposed the exile, he was not forced in, he chose this. How do we know this? So the Marsha says, it's a very long and circuitous verse. The Pesach says, Asher Hagla Mirushalayim, exiled from, Egypt, from, from Jerusalem. Im ha asher Haglasa, with the exiles that were exiled. Yehoniah, Melech Yehuda, with Yehoniah, the king of Yehuda. So the Marsha says, if you wanted to say that he was sent into exile, you should have simply said, "Asher Hagla Mirushalayim im yekhania. Asher Hagla, who was exiled from Mirushalayim, im Yehoniah, with Yehoniah and the story. Yehoniah was exiled, Mardechav was exiled with Yehoniah. Instead, it says, "Asher Hagla Mishalayim im Hagoyla Asher saw. with the exile that was exiled. Which was Im Yechania ye We have three words here, like a whole phrase. it's unnecessary. Asher Hagla that was exiled. Im Hagoyla Asher so, with the exile that was exiled. So in other words, it seems to be like an exile that was exiled. And Marduchai's ex goes into exile with the exile that was exiled. So there's an exile that was exiled, and Mordechai going along with the exile that's exiled. So if the exile is exiled, and Mordechai is going along with the exile that's exiled, <laughs> what does it have to mean? It means they were forcibly exiled. Whereas Mordechai went along with them. That's how the marshal would put it. And last but not least, in the Binyo, he says that it comes from the word Asher. Asher Hogla. The word Asher is not necessary here. You could simply have said that, about Mordechai a Yehudi, that he was Hogla Mirushalayim HaGoyla. The word Asher doesn't have to be here. So the Binyo, B- Binyo says... That Asher comes as a permutation of the word ashre. Ashrei means fortunate. Fortunate. So what is this business fortunate? That the Pasuk, that the verse is being mishabeach, that this verse is praising Mordechai. It's praising Mordechai, they went along with the exiles that he wanted to feel their pain, that he didn't want to see them go into exile all by himself. So I try very hard not to say anything for myself. I try to tell you this from something else. But I, I think that there's something very, very deep that's happening here in the Yo. So I want to suggest that the origin, the real origin of his commentary, goes back to Moshe Rabbeinu. With regard to Moshe Rabbeinu, incidentally, we have a medrash that says the Mordechai Bederi and Moshe There's a, syn- a, a synonymity drawn between Mordechai and between Moshe Rabbeinu. And the famous last mimer from the Rebbe, Vata Tzava is all about the juxtaposition of Mordechai and of Moshe. So, with regard to Moshe, there is also a drasha on the words asher. God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, you should replace the luchas. luchos, make new luchos, kari like the first ones, asher shibarta. That you broke. But really, in Hebrew, it could have said, psalucha, huat for yourself, nu luches, kari shibarta with one Hebrew letter Shin Sheshibarta instead we get not one Hebrew letter we get three Hebrew letters not an adjunct but a new word Asher Rashi in his commentary on the Chumash quotes our sages and he says the subtle subtext here of Asher that Asher comes from Yasher Koch and God is telling to Moshe Rabbeinu Yashar more power to you or in English thank you I'm grateful that you broke the luchas. Why would God be grateful? So here Rashi invokes this beautiful explanation that is a metaphor of a king who went off on a trip and he left his bride-to-be, and then there was an orgy in the palace, and there was an aspersion cast upon the bride, and the king wanted to have her killed. So what did the close friend do? He tore up the marriage document, tore up the contractual agreement. So there was no legal basis for the king to prosecute the queen. And then later they investigated and it wasn't the queen, It was the maidservants around her, it was, there was an orgy in the palace, it wasn't nice, the queen should live. It. She wasn't deserving of death. So the king is very grateful. He says, you know, you saved my life. I, I flew off the handle. I would have done who knows what. Now I, I owe you my, my, my queen's life. He said, you know what? You tore up the first contract, you draw up a new contract. But he, but he said it with gratefulness. So Rashi says that the Jewish people were condemned by God because of the sin of the golden calf and then when they investigated they found out it wasn't exactly the Jewish people it was a mixed multitude it was the Erev Rav who didn't really belong there and they just got swept up in it so the Jewish people are saved but in the meantime Moshe Rabbeinu Moses broke the marriage contract what's the marriage contract the Luches that says you're not allowed to have any other gods so Moshe broke that so God said okay now you replace it but God was grateful to Moshe what did Moshe essentially do Moshe was Moshe Nefesh Moshe Rabbeinu he risked his own life he gave up his own spiritual virtue in order to save Kalal Yisrael and then there's that famous Simchas I think it was 1985 Tashmervav when the <coughs> Rebbe speaks about the fact that the last words in the entire Chumash La'einei kol Yisrael that the the mighty deeds that Moshe Rabbeinu did before the eyes of all of Israel so Rashi says what is these mighty deeds that he broke the luchas. And that's how the Torah finishes. The Torah finishes the Meshavari and breaking the luchas. And the Rebbe, when he, told, he wept when he spoke about this. So this is the end of the Torah? <laughs> that's, that's, that's the final word? That he, the Meshavari broke the luchas? That was such a mighty deed? It was weeping profusely during the Sikha. He's talking about the luchas being broken. And he offered us an extraordinarily exquisite and beautiful and touching and poignant explanation, he said that the most powerful and most wonderful thing about Moshe Rabbeinu is he was ready to destroy the handiwork of God to save the Jewish people. That's the pshat. That's the greatest thing that Moshe Rabbeinu ever did, that he was ready to save Am Yisrael, even if it took risking his own life, destroying the luchas, doing the most extraordinary things. So, so so me thinks that maybe there's a connection between what the binyo yo was saying. I don't really know if this is true. Or maybe hacking in China. but but <laughs> there's a connection between what the binyo was saying and this story of the asher with Moshe Rabbeinu, and and therefore, so what, what 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 do I what do I mean to say, that Moshe Rabbeinu was a person who didn't care about his own virtue or value. What did he think about it instead? People. Thought about the people. So I would like to suggest forgive me if I just make my own suggestion, I think maybe that the pshat here is that that Mordechai, like Moshe Rabbeinu, that he was prepared to leave the Beis HaMikdash, to leave Yerushalayim. You know why? Because he wanted to provide comfort for the Jewish people. Because the people were more important than he was. And when the people are more important than you, that's why Mordechai became the leader of the Jewish people. That's why the Jewish people were saved through them. So incidentally, just to bolster this, to prove that I'm not t- entirely off the walls. So there is two reasons that I give him for Moshe Rabbeinu's having gone away. There, there, there's, um, there's this discussion, there's the Gemara, as the stories of the Gemara are excerpted and redacted into a famous book called Ein Yaakov, which sometimes has slight permutations of vari- variations. And and the Ein Yaakov, so there's the Riaf on the Ein Yaakov. He says that Mordechai went along... Because the Sanhedrin was exiled. Most of the most of the sages were exiled. Because the sages were exiled, Mordechai wanted to study Torah. It was more important for him to study Torah even than be in Yerushalayim. Okay. And there's another explanation. The Ion Yaakov says that Mordechai went into Golos because he knew the people would need him. That he had this premonition, this Ruach HaKodesh, this holy vision. Something was going to go bad. Things would go wrong. And who would be there in the lurch? Mardukhai. and that's exactly what happened so Mordechai knew that he had to be concerned for others so, so I would like to maybe suggest to you that the Ian Yaakov here is this is this is on the mark and this is really what we're talking about here and that's why if if this is correct if this is correct it all makes so much sense why the Megillah tells us in the first thing we know about Mordechai is that he's Ish Yehudi, that he rejects idolatry that, that's what said. we learned about last week. We learned about the deep history that he is a descendant of Shaul HaMelech Ishi, meaning going back to the Minyamen. Right? This is an what's the next thing we learn about him? The very next thing we hear about him. It's not just a historical curio or detail. I should have that he went into Galus. No, no, no. The Megillah is explaining to us who was Mordechai. How did Mordechai rise to greatness? You know what the answer is? Because when he could have stayed in Yerushalayim, but the people needed him, he left Yerushalayim to be with the people. Because a tzaddik, who can self-impose exile, because that's the needs of Am Yisrael, that's how he became Mordechai. And that's a critical component in the story. It's the second thing we know about Mordechai. First thing we know is Ishi Yehudi. The very next verse is Asher Hagla. So if this is all correct, it, it like, let's say it, the whole thing sings off the pages. You know, Now it's, it, it becomes so beautiful, it becomes so profound. I've, I've, uh, it all just seems to make so much sense as to what's really going on over here and why that's something that we need to know about and why that plays a role in clarifying and explaining the story of the Megillah that unfolds and the actions that Mordechai will take. And you'll see soon that this thesis that Mordechai demands of himself, he has, makes similar demands of Esther. You can only demand from others, you demand for yourself. The famous thing, in these, uh, these people call it fundraisers. What's the first thing a person says? Did you give money? <laughs> you ask somebody else to do it with you? Mordechai said, I, "I did this," and he says to Esther, "I want you to do something now. That's very hard." And this is ultimately he raised Esther. So Esther, she she learned the lessons of Mordechai. Mordechai's life was for her a roadmap. map. Was for her this is the way she lived her life. And you'll see that's how Esther also self-sacrificially does what must be done. Because she knows she has to help the Jewish people, as we'll soon see. Was he, was he, like a, was he a prophet? Was Mordechai a prophet? I would. would, He just got got, um, wind of it like like, a roch hakodesh that he was supposed to. Exactly what the difference in roch hakodesh and prophecy is, I'm not sure because I have neither. (laughs) 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 But uh, people, it means that there are great tzaddikim that are aware of things that we could not possibly be aware of. Uh So nevuah has a very specific halachic definition of what exactly nevuah is. And when Nevuah comes and how Nevuah comes. And uh, we could have the notion of Nevuah in a broader sense. Nevuah means intuition from a heavenly place. So, in a broader sense. Mardukha was aware of things. Was, he, was it actual? It means a Navi. No. People say foolish things like, mm-hmm. the Rebbe said many times that what things the Rabbeim said is. It's similar to the concept of Nevuah. It doesn't mean the Rebbe said he's a Navi. It doesn't mean the Rebbe said that Rabbeim are Naviim. Even though that's possible, it's not, it's not what they've ever said necessarily. They've ever said it many, many times. You just say it in the late 90s. It was said in the early, early 80s and the 70s. It means that a tzaddik has Ruch HaKedish. A tzaddik is aware of things at a different level. What makes a leader a leader? What makes a leader a leader? Devotion. 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 But it doesn't mean every leader has Ruha HaKedish. The greatest have Ruch it make So, sense? So there's a story. That one time, the Rebbe Maharaj, the fourth Rebbe, he was supposed to go somewhere on a train, and there was a a small a small tra- uh, station, a train station in a place called Rudina. Rudina was a little village outside Lubavitch, and that's where the train actually stopped. And then Rudina would take it to Smolensk, which was already a big, fair-sized town, and there was a big train station there. Big, not very big. I was there. So, well, it's not that big, but it's... A, so the Rebbe Marash is there and the Hasidim came to escort him he's going off on a trip and he's, uh, he's teaching Hasidus and the train comes and he's teaching Hasidus and the train is the whistle is going and the Rebbe Marash is teaching Hasidus and nobody's going to interrupt the Rebbe in the middle of living a Maimer and the train leaves and later the train derailed and the people said wow, wow they came to Rebbe if you knew the train's going to derail why didn't you tell the people they would have gotten off people got hurt the Rebbe said "I didn't know so they said why didn't you go on the train The Rebbe Marash said, as soon as I came there, I felt an urge that I have to teach Chassidus now. And I learned to trust my instincts. I have to teach Chassidus. So that's an example of Ruach HaKadosh. And then there's a story with his son, the Rebbe Rashab, that the Rebbe Rashab was asked by a certain person. His son wanted to go to the United States. Talking the turn of the century. Most people didn't come out, uh, let's just say, smelling spiritually clean when they went off to America. America was called the Trefina in the Medina. If right? you went to America, you, you didn't remain with Yiddishkeit, and very few people did. I, I, I have an ancestor, go back six generations, who, who left Poland in 18, the early 1880s, 1881, to come to America. Why? Because he had given a loan to a Polish nobleman, and the Polish nobleman didn't pay back the loan, so he took him to court. The next thing he found out, the police and the army were both looking for him. And each one had murderous intent. So he ran to the famous Tzadik, the Cheskul of Shinovah, and he said to the Shinovah Rebbe, I, I, what should I do? For wife, I have two children, what should I do? So the Rebbe said, it's foreign in America. You should go to America. So the Shaykhet, Shaykhet overhead. it, Shinovah Rebbe said, he said, I want to go too? Shinovah Rebbe said no. He said, he said, his name was Hashem Elohech, El My, This is my Zaidi's grandfather. He said, Er, meaning he'll remain an observant Jew. And he did. In the old generations, he made an observant. <laughs> and do? Bliben, and you'll remain right <laughs> 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 was So, anyway, this guy's, the Rebbe, Rashab, uh, uh, has his chassid, his son was to go to America. He asked the Rebbe, the Rebbe says, don't go. And don't go. The boy said, yeah, what do you think the Rebbe's going to say? Of course, he said, don't go. And he went. And sadly, tragically, the ship sank en route. So the father came to the Rebbe, heartbroken, of course, and he said, if the Rebbe would have told my son the ship was going to sink, surely he would have listened. So the Rebbe said, I didn't know the ship was going to sink. So they said to why did the Rebbe say he shouldn't go? The Rebbe said, as soon as he said he shouldn't go, I had a deep uneasiness, and therefore I said he shouldn't go. That's Ruch HaKedesh. Ariel Sharon was in the Rebbe's office, and the Rebbe says to Ariel Sharon, when are you leaving? And he says, tonight tomorrow, whenever it was, the Rebbe says, "I don't think it's a good idea to take the flight." You ask me, the miracle is a real sharon. Listen, can't get, it, doesn't go on the flight. The flight's hijacked. Mm-hmm. Terrorists. Who are they looking for? A <laughs> real sharon. A real sharon comes back to Rebbe to thank him for saving his life, mm-hmm. and he says, "Rebbe, if you knew they're going to hijack the plane, why didn't you tell me? We could have caught them." The Rebbe said, I "Didn't know." So he said, "Then why didn't you tell me not to go on?" The Rebbe said, "I learned to trust my instincts." As soon as you told me that you're going, I had a deep uneasiness overcame me. So these are examples of Ruach HaKedosh. I could tell you all my stories about Ruach HaKedosh. Stories of Ruach HaKedosh. What did Mordechai have? A prophecy here? Or did he have Ruach HaKedosh? A, I don't know. B, I don't care. It's not relevant. It doesn't matter if Mordechai had prophecy or Ruach HaKedosh. The bottom line is he knew what other people didn't know. And therefore he was, he was driven or motivated or in a sense impelled by, by a, an awareness and a closeness to Hashem that comes from a higher place. It's one thing to have that feeling, to have that, it's another thing to act on it. Mordechai gets credit not for having a Rokhah he gets credit for acting on it. He gets credit for putting himself into Golis, which is counterintuitive on every level. Who leaves Yerushalayim? Willingly. You're not, you're not exiled. Thank you, lucky stars. Baruch Hashem, thank God. The Baruch Hashem. not exiled. I was Zoycha. I had the privilege. I could stay here with the Beis HaMikdash. And Mordechai went. Okay, this whole kerfuffle is just like seven words in the Gemara, by the way. But there's <laughs> no really way to understand the Gemara without, I think, a little bit of background. And we'll see, this leads us into. So the Gemara now continues and it says, Vayihi omen es that Mordechai was raising Hadassah, who is was Bas Deide, who is his niece. So the Gemara does not analyze the business of raising Esther or raising Hadassah, but the first, next order of business on the Gemara is the name change. What's the name change? So the Gemara says, We call her Hadasa. We call Esther. We call her Esther. First of all, which is her real name? Secondly, why do we keep changing names? So the Gemara wants two things. The Gemara wants to find out what the real name was. What's the, what's the add-on name? And once we know what the real and the add-on, the obvious question is, why did they change the name? Was wrong. How was that instructive? Does it teach us something? So the Gemara goes through a number of different sages and the explanations that they offered. And I'm going to humbly submit that this is not only a technical answer, but this actually provides us with a profound appreciation of how they viewed the story of the Megillah and which virtue was being conveyed to us about Esther Hamalka, the great righteous, wonderful woman who saved us. Tanya, the Gemara says, we learned in a brisa. And this is now, the Gemara asks the question. So the Gemara begins to quote various brises. Bra- a brisa is from the genre of the Mishnah. The rabbis and their teachings are coming from the era of the Mishnah, not from the era of the Gemara, but this wasn't recorded in the Mishnah. So, so the Gemara is introducing it. Rabbi Meir Eimer, Rabbi Meir, who's a great Tana, he said, Esther Shema. Her real name was Esther. And from the fact that Rabbi Meir says Esther Shema, which is her real name is Esther, we can understand that the Gemara's question was, what was her real name? Because that's what the answer is. The Gemara is bringing this b'risa in response to the question. So the question is not only, why does she have two names? The Gemara seems to implicitly understand that there was a name and a name change. And the Gemara wants to know what the real woman is. So the Gemara says, according to Rabbi Meir, her real name is Esther. So why is she called Hadassah and the Megillah? And why is that relevant? And what's going on here? So the Gemara says Al shame Hatsadikim. She was called Hadasa by virtue of the extremely righteous. How do we know this? Shinikru, the extremely righteous, are referred to as Hadassim. Hadasim mean myrtles. Mm-hmm. Yes, if you're wondering, this is the same Hadasim Adul Esrik. Yeah, same Hadasim. Myrtles. So, where do we know this from? It says the Gemara First of all, it seems to be known. It seems to be known that Hadassim tzaddikim are called Hadassim. But not only tzaddikim are called There's actually a pasuk. Hu He says, and this is a pasuk in the first chapter of Zechariah and the eighth verse. It says that I saw the night, and I saw a man riding on the Edomite horse on the source of Edom, and, and this horse of Edom, he was standing between the myrtles. Now all of this, of course, is a metaphor, as many prophecies are, metaphoric imagery, which the prophet saw the image, and he knew immediately what it meant. So Zechariah Hanavi sees God riding, this is this man riding on the horse, it's a metaphor for God's presence, and he's, Oymid bein HaHadassim. So what's the, what's the message here? Rashi tells us, amongst the Hadassim that are in the marsh, this is a metaphor. And it means that God's presence was amongst the righteous who were exiled to Babylon. Rashi says this verse is talking about God's presence. Now we have a different teaching that says, Golu, the Babel, They went into Babel, the Shina was with them. Golula Edaim, Shina They went into Edom, the Shina was with them. And we have many, many incredible teachings about God conveying to us that He is with us in our times of sorrow and that the Yid is never alone. In fact, the very first time God communicates to the leader of the nation of Israel is in a burning bush. Prior to this, the figures, the biblical figures, are family people. Avram is the leader of his family. He has a Jewish child, a one-family child. Yitzchak has two children, a wayward son and a good son. Yaakov has a big family. It's still a family. And then there's a nation. And the nation dissolves, so to speak. Rots away in Mitzrayim. And then Moshe Rabbeinu is tapped and chosen back. And what, is, what, is, what does Moshe Rabbeinu say to God? He says, what's your name? He sent me on a mission. I should go tell him, what's your name? And God said, oh, my name, Eheyeh. I will be, I will be, I will be with them this time, I'm with them now, I'll be with them in the future. It's a famous uh, sikhah from the Rebbe, also the Rebbe actually wept profusely when he spoke about this. So, uh, how does Moshe know that God is going to, they're going to ask what's God's name? So, so the Rebbe explains that the idea of a name represents the way you relate, like, you know, people, the way you call people, the formal titles you use them, that represents different relationships. So, the question that the Yidden will have is, Moshe Albain will say, he says, There's a God, and he loves you, and he cares about you, and you're his people. What's the first question they're going to have? Yeah, where's he been till now? Where was he when our babies were thrown into the river? Where was he when our babies were slaughtered? Where was he when our parents were beaten to a pulp? Where was he when people were. Da- Where was he? And what's God's response? I was right there with them. Yeah, And I'll always be with them. I'll always be with them in the Gullus. and And. and Moshe Rabbeinu says, I should tell them about the next goal. They didn't even get out of this one yet. Rashi says, no, God says, don't, don't tell them about the future. I'm just telling you. You should know, as the Mesh Rabbeinu, as the leader of this people, you should know that ultimately everything will always go down in a manner that I am with my people, regardless of what happens. So, so we have, this is the message to Zachariah. Zachariah's message like the first of the great prophets of Meshach Rabbeinu, and like many prophets before and after, and like many of the messages that we, come, we comes across in the written Torah and in the oral Torah, this idea that when we are in galus, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is with us. He's with us. And the Shekhinah there assumes the form of the man and the horse, and the Edomite horse. Now what's the imagery in, this, in the Zachariah vision? What's the imagery of the tzaddikim, of the righteous people? The imagery of the righteous is the Hadassim. Understand? The tzaddikim, the tzaddikim are like a Beis Migdash, That's what they're like. In drushas Aran, there's a beautiful Drasha The Aran says that the Beis Migdash was a place where people would be able to reach their maximum spiritual potential. That doesn't mean that everybody who went to the Beis Migdash was a prophet. It meant that somebody who was worthy of prophecy would experience prophecy when he went to the Beis Migdash. And that's why the Ran quotes the famous teaching about Yoyinah. Why was it called Simchas Beis HaSho'eva, because it was joy on Sukkot, Umishom Sho'avim. From there, he was able to, so to speak, to, 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 to dip in and to receive his inspiration. He was able to bucket out the inspiration. That's where he got his prophecy. Where? In the Beis HaMikdash. Then the Ran says something amazing. The says you should know that just like in the Beis HaMikdash, being in the physical proximity of the Beis HaMikdash. That a person was able to reach his or her spiritual potential it maximized your possibilities Ran says you should know that when a person is in the presence of a tzaddik it acts in the same fashion like a base and he says after the passing of a tzaddik at his grave even more so so the presence of hashem is actualized through tzaddikim if you want to if you if you need a 21st century metaphor for it if it's places you have very good reception you have a solid antenna, you have good reception. So it's the same device, but when you're in a lousy reception area or a good reception area, the picture comes through clearer, it comes through quicker. You know, there's there's a clear broadcast. But in the 21st century, we have this amazing thing that you could be offline, but you could hotspot from somebody else's phone. If they're online, you can get online through them. You can actually pair a phone. So it's like a like, 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 a, like a like a private Wi-Fi kind of thing. And that's where the tzaddikah. This means the presence of Hashem was where in Bava? Where was the presence of Hashem? With the Hadassin. Who are the Hadassin? The tzaddikah. So what are we being told? That's why Esther is called Hadassah. And why is Esther called Hadassah? Because she's very righteous. So Rashi says... That that the uh, and we have this idea of actualizing the shechina, despite the fact that they're in galus. Nonetheless, they remain loyal, committed, and devoted to Hashem. Hadass is the one that has the smell with no taste. Very good. Hadassim have a beautiful fragrance, and when they do grow berries, they're not tasty. And why does that define subject? Okay, that's a very good question. So, Mark, your question is better than you know it, actually. Let me tell you why. One of the things that humanity, mm-hmm. a, a fulfilled version of humanity is compared to in the Torah is a tree. Kiha Adam, oda hasada. right? The person is metaphorized as it's a tree. That's why we make a big deal. Two B'Shvat. And the idea of Rosh Hashanah So the Gemara tells us, V'chi Adam M'Eitz The Gemara says, what? A person is a tree now. Well, what does that mean? So the Gemara says that it's a metaphor. And it says, if he gives fruits, if a person teaches, meaning they talk the talk and they walk the walk. So they're actually providing fruit and nourishment. They know a deyrech and know a mekayim. They can speak about it and do it and put it into action. Then you should eat from him. Don't, don't cut yourself away. Connect yourself to that person. But there's a teacher who doesn't give any fruit. Beautiful teachings. Nothing to do with real life. No nourishment. Then in that case, that, 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 that tree can cut down. So it comes along. If this is true, that's, I'm giving you a snapshot. That's the kernel. It's like a seed of the gemara. So the Ben Yeroyada asks, the marshal actually asks this question they have different answers the masha asks a question and he says Givald. why would we compare the tzaddikim to hadasim hadasim don't give any fruit even when they have berries they're bitter and they're not edible and incidentally if you have berries on the hadasim the hadasim aren't even kosher you have to pick the berries off depends what color the berries are could you do it on Shabbos can't you do it on Shabbos a whole discussion about this so the Masha answers that there's two things vegetation can give. Fruit or fragrance. Fragrance is also a contribution. It's a contribution. The point is, a tree, it doesn't make a contribution. It's a different kind of contributions. Fragrance is also a contribution. That's what the Masha says. Ben Hiyoda takes it a step further. He says, Tzadikim, in the other world, do not have material pleasure. It says, haba, The Rambam says, The world to come, which refers to Gan Eden, There's no eating, there's no drinking. There's none of that. There's no physical phenomenon. So what's the metaphor for the delight and the pleasure of the world to come? The Ben Yadah says, So generally speaking, it's the idea of wisdom, knowledge, understanding. But there's also a concept of reah, of scent, of aroma. You could link this to what Hasidus explains about the Ketoros. The Ketoros represents the highest form of Avoid It's talked about the Beinu other and also. Because the scent is is something, aromas, they touch the soul. You know, it's, it's a, an, an invention. It's, about, it's a few decades old. I don't know why it didn't take off more. But yeah, it's an alarm clock that makes no noise. It releases the scent. Wakes you up by scent. It's, it's a much more... Uh, pl- it's a nicer way to wake up in the morning. I don't know why it's not popular and nobody buys it, but apparently f- f- for a while it was on the market. Alarm clocks have at scent, food, fragrance, whatever you want. And the fragrance eventually wakes somebody up. You ever hear something called smelling salts, right? You're feeling very faint, the smelling salts, you know? That's all those uh, geriatric uh, Yom Kippur fasters, yeah. you know? And they're feeling very faint, <laughs> <laughs> to take this thing they go <gasps> I still have nightmares as a child, you know, right? watching these old men pass around. I mean, they were probably like young, probably like 70, but I thought they were like ancient. And like, I once was a kid, I was, what is it? You want some? Sure. I give a smell, I saw colors, like, and then never again for me. <laughs> so it says the neshama is nenes. It says the neshama actually derives pleasure and satisfaction from scent. We also see this in the fact that on Matzai Shabbos, when the Shabbos leaves, it says we have an extra neshama that's leaving us. We feel faint. What do we do? We feel faint. We smell, right? Some people snort things when they don't feel. Like that's <laughs> not a good idea. That's a, should not snort anything, <laughs> But to smell fragrance—that's a nice. The neshama enjoys. So the Ben Yehuda says something so beautiful. He says, Esther was in the palace. It was in the palace, and what was there in the palace? Every imaginable material pleasure food and drink, and pamper yourself, well, you name it. And what, what was Esther? She didn't partake of any it. She avoided all the gashmias, all the materialism. is irrelevant to her. She remained righteous. And how do we say she remained righteous? By calling her Adasa. So really, when you put the marsha together with the Yoda so I think this is then the pshat. This is what I was thinking today. If her name is Esther, if that's her real name, who gave the name Hadassah? Who, gave, who, who called her Hadassah? I think the Jewish people did because Hadassah is a Hebrew, it's a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word. It's found in the Torah. Esther is not a Hebrew word. In Hebrew, the word Esther is a permutation of actually of a negative phenomenon. but in Persian and in Greek and in the other languages that were spoken in that part of the world it could mean either the moon or it could mean Venus Istahar means a star the word star, the morning star is Venus in English we use the word star for every body that's bright but originally, the name came from Persian, which was Istahar. And Istahar, which if you think, Istahar is Esther, Istahar is Venus. And in the pantheon of pagan gods, Venus represents the goddess of beauty. They called her like a goddess, a goddess of beauty. So they called her Venus. Or they called her the moon, beautiful as bright as the moon. In Yiddish we have an expression, it's a Yiddish ballad. It's not a Torah ballad, but a y- beautiful as the moon. So this idea of physical beauty, that word does not come from a Jewish source. Now, that doesn't mean she couldn't be given that name. We have many names in in Jewish history of many great people who were, the names were entirely Greek. We had our great Rebbe, his name was Antigonus. First of all, nobody named the kids Antigonus, and I don't know why, but Antigonus is a Greek name. Alexander, it's a Greek name. So there were many great sages with Greek names, many great righteous men and women had Greek names. So if it was a name that her name was Esther, because whatever, they were in Golosin. Uh, we brought home names of months. We got names of people. How many Yiddish names are there which are basically Russian or Polish? So, so when we're in a place, Jewish, Jewish people could have adopted a name, and they took this name, Esther, named their son Esther. It's not, it's, not, it's not hard to fathom that. But Hadassah is a Jewish name. It's a Hebrew word. So if we followed the teaching of Reb Meir, who gave the name Hadassah, the Jewish people would have given her that name. What was the message? The message we want to convey is that Esther remained righteous every single moment. And when she was in the palace, she was Esther. She was Hadassah, pardon me, even though she had a Greek name, even though she had a name which a, a Persian name, a name which the people called who was she really? Hadassah. Like the Ben Yodha explains, she was like the aroma, the spirit of, of of spirituality that that defined her. So we would have named her that. That means she, her real name was Esther. The Nam which we adopt in the in the Megillah, is a name which bespeaks her righteousness. But isn't uh, it rooted? So, uh, uh, well, uh, let's go one at a time. <laughs> yeah. Isn't is, in Hebrew we have we have. Names or, or words are always rooted in something, right? Okay. Every name is rooted in something, but <coughs> there are many names that became Judaized, that became part of Jewish tradition, which were not lis- to begin with Jewish necessarily. It became a Jewish name. Hmm. You know any Sephardic girls named Masodi? Or any uh, Sephardic men named Masod? I know half a dozen here in Toronto. What do you think? My name is Mendel. What does Mendel mean? It's Yiddish for an almond. Almond. Yeah. Almond oh, bread. Mandel bread. <laughs> <Mandelbread>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's Jewish about the almond? Mm-hmm. So I have a whole thesis of how Mendel gets married to Menachem. I I I know why those. I think I know why those names go together. That's for another for another time. But the point is, actually, I gave once a lecture about that. But the point is, though, that Shkedim, almonds represent something. In the prophetic imagination, the imagery of the almond is used to represent haste and swiftness and so on and so forth. So Menachem is comforter, it's, it's, a, it's a messianic, it refers to messianic comfort. And so Mendel would mean to it should be accelerated, hasten. But the name Mendel is not, it doesn't have, the name Mendel does not have a, a, a Jewish or a Hebrew root. You understand? No, it does Mesod. And so, the, so, so the name they Esther. It's not a surprise. The, they're Antigonus. Where did his name come from? Whatever. Yeah, what's your point? Well, okay. I mean, the whole idea of Hadassah yeah. That you appreciate that she's exactly. That she remained righteous despite the fact that she was not in a righteous environment. But they were in a low level. Would they appreciate that. It doesn't mean the Jews at the time called her the Megillah calls her that. This is a story that's being conveyed for posterity. This is the prophetic tradition that's being passed down to us, generation after generation. We go back to the story. We should understand who Esther was. Not like everybody was bad. There were some righteous Jews, but that's the point. Is what we're being told us, Rabbi Yehuda Yeah. One more thing. So when you say lahastil it comes from the word conceal. Conceal. Yeah. So that's that's so, that's a so negative still, thing. Yeah, I know it's a negative thing. I'm just saying, is it the is the idea you said the, the name came from the environment that she was in. I'm saying that the name Esther was a, her original name. It was it was bepashtos simply stated. I can't imagine it. otherwise it would have been a name the Jewish people adopted but did not have a Jewish source. All our months don't have Jewish sources, maybe except the month of Shvat was called shvat but that, name, that the name is mentioned. But all the months in general, we came, we came from Bavil. So if, if our months got names, it's not hard to understand that people got names. And it's a fact. We know that people had Greek names. But they named her a Hebrew name because they wanted to emphasize Rabbi Yehuda, you'll still see why I'm going down this path. Rabbi Yehuda says that Hadassah Shema. No, no, no. She had a Hebrew name. Her name was Her name was Hadassah. Esther. The why she sometimes referred to as Esther. So he says, you know why the Jewish people would have called her Esther? She al shame because she concealed her words. in Esther magedes Esther did not tell her birth. she didn't tell her who she was from. So, what country are you from? Who is your people? What ethnicity are you? And she would just smile. And she never answered the question. So the, that's what they called her Esther. So Esther actually comes from the word then Masteris. Here, Esther is not a positive thing. Esther means concealment. Why did they call her concealment? Why did the Jewish people call her concealment? Because she behaved in a manner of concealment. And in this way, the name Esther does not seem to have a positive energy to it on the contrary it means concealment it was good for her. so, so why, what's, why is that important for us to know so I want to tell you that if if you stop and think the one thing that becomes very clear was that Esther was a real chassid of Mordechai she was the real Chassid. because Mordechai told her something which seemed to make no sense why shouldn't she say who she is why shouldn't she so why didn't she because Mordechai told her. So that's the virtue. Being, there's two virtues being conveyed. The first virtue is Esther's virtue. That she was Hadassah. That she had the fragrance and aroma of a tzidkonos. The second virtue is that we should know that Esther was a chasad. That she listened to the Rebbe. Mordechai said, don't tell. She didn't tell. So there's the chasad. End of the story. There's a famous story. Simchas, tell her Hey. One of the eunuch boys comes into... Is a family. The family that comes into the, the Rebbe staying in the apartment. Rebbezin staying in the apartment. The Rebbe says, "What's going on with the febrigen?" So he says that the Rebbe said Rebbezin lechayim, and the Rebbe says, "Empty all the cups." And the Rebbe was encouraging the singing, holding his becher, his kiddush cup, upside down. And without a question, the Rebbe turned all the cups in the house upside down. Esther was a chassid. Chassid. said End the story. It's a different kind of virtue. You know, in Hasidus, there's a discussion, called, it's called the Aveda uh, the of Ben and Aveda of Evid. Right? We say in Rosh Hashanah. If we're like children, if we're like servants. So, what does this mean? Famous Hemshek, continuation of my mother from the Rebbe Rashab from the year 1906, and some famous Hemshek Samavov. He goes through the virtues of each one. The Ben is the Yid who was a passion and a fervor and, a, and a, an understanding and a clarity of his Yiddishkeit. And he's totally into it. And the evid is the person who doesn't appreciate, doesn't understand, doesn't know why. So why does he do it for? Because Kabbalah he accepts upon himself the because that's what has to be done. And the Rebbe Hashab talks about the virtue of each one. And he kind of says that the virtue of the second is greater. That the one who just does what has to be done because they're told to do that, that, is on some level far more virtuous. That's the real idea of bittel That's the real idea of self-abnegation and commitment. It's not about you, because it's about you. You're serving God, but it's about you. I'm serving God. The Evid is not about me at all. He's nameless and faceless. He's totally committed. It's good to the bigger cause. He doesn't care about himself. And maybe I'm just imagining this, but it seems to me that these two, these two teachings over here reflect the two things, right? You have the teaching of Rabbi Meir, who says Hadassah, Roma, virtue, with she means righteous. The second teaching is she just followed instructions. She did what Mordechai said. Mordechai mm-hmm. said, don't tell. Don't tell. End the story. She didn't tell. Now, this gets, this gets um, really interesting. because We're going to ask ourselves, so why didn't she tell? <laughs> like, really? Why didn't she tell? Why did Mordechai say that? This is a good question. So I'm going to give you a bunch of answers that, that, that I've given as to why Mordechai told her not to tell her name. And remember, this is what Mordechai knew, not what Esther knew. Esther couldn't have known necessarily why. She didn't tell you because Mordechai said not to. Megillah says that clearly. So the Targum of the Megillah says that Mordechai was concerned. He was concerned. He didn't even know if Esther was going to survive this whole episode. What happened to the first wife who came from a fancy lineage and she was a daughter or a granddaughter of kings? What happened to her? She didn't last very long. So... Mordechai said, my dear Esther, I don't even know if you're going to make it. Like, but Mordechai was afraid if the king would be enraged at Esther, not only would he kill Esther, but who else would he kill? The rest of the Jewish people. So because he was concerned about everybody else, he said to Esther, ZG, you know what ZG is? garnished. <laughs> <laughs> Say nothing. It's Yiddish. Say nothing. It's an expression, ZG, garnished.'" Zug. Zogin is to say. In Yiddish. I'm just a joke. But, uh, people say ZG. So it's, a, it's, a, it's like a code. You know, like a, you're in a place where you're talking Yiddish. Nobody speaks Yiddish. ZG. Zug garnish. Don't say nothing. You know, like a, sometimes anything you say will be held against you. Say nothing. Say nothing. You know, we go through the border. Say nothing. That's it. Don't give. <laughs> never offer information. <laughs> Answer the questions. And that's it. <laughs> my wife told me she was a little girl, and they came back from New York, and the uh, board officer says, uh, "You buy anything?" And my father-in-law is like, "Buy." They bought the kids some shoes, and, but they were there for four days. But they have to. He says, "No, we didn't buy." And my wife and her sister are like, "No, no, we bought shoes." Yeah. (Laughter) <laughs> <laughs> Zugarnished. He said, I said, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Wash it. Don't say anything. Why not?" Mordechai, what should he tell her? Esther, I'm really afraid that your head might be removed from your torso. And then, it might cause many other heads to be removed. So, you know, Esther, it's better just your head should be removed. And not everybody else is, What did he tell her that. He didn't say, well, he just told Esther, you be quiet. That's it. And this way, Mordechai felt at least, the, at least the worst Chas v'shalom, the worst happens to Esther, at least nobody else suffered. So this is really Esther in a precarious situation. Rashi himself on the Megillah says that Mordechai was hoping and praying that Esther would get out of this pickle. And he said the worst thing that could possibly happen was if Esther would say who she is. You're Jewish. Oh, you're Jewish. What's your lineage? And her lineage gets traced back to? Shaul Oh, he'll love this Achashverosh. By the way, Achashverosh had this thing about Jewish kings. He built himself a, a throne like Solomon. Like he was into Jewish kings. This is, uh, that's all he needed. That he should find out that she's connected to an ancient Jewish king. And now he feels that Esther's also. She's perfectly suited for the position of Mordechai. I hope she would somehow get out of this. He said, don't say anything. Don't say. if not saying one thing. zog garnished. say nothing. Don't say a word. The Yalquot Shemini says that Mordechai wanted to avoid any kind of greatness and honor and extra responsibility and being raised to a fancy position because Ahasuerus kept saying to Esther, once he chose her, who is your family? Who can I repay for raising such a wonderful wife? They raised my wife for me. Who did this to you? Who is your people? And then Mordechai would end up with another whole bunch of responsibilities and would take him away from his Aved Hashem. And he didn't want that. The humble person Mordechai wasn't looking for this. So he said to Esther, don't say anything. The less you say, the better off I'll be. Okay? That's, the, that's another reason. So far we've got three reasons. The Ibn Ezra quotes a reason which actually is the opposite of Rashi because Rashi says he was hoping she would leave. The Ibn Ezra suggests, and Amloyaz brings other Mepharshim that say similar, that Mordechai had a, a vision. And in this dream, the Ibn Ezra says, either it was a dream or it was a, a prophecy. Who asked prophecy? Vision or prophecy? Whatever. But the vision was that uh, there's going to be a great salvation that will need to come to the Jewish people and that Mordechai figured Esther should be quiet and that way when push will come to shove need will be Esther will be able to step up to the plate. Why? Because she won't be known as a Jew. If she would be known as a Jew, she wouldn't be able to want to save. He wanted Esther to have the merit of saving Jewish people. And the best way that Esther could have the merit is zip the lips. So don't say anything. Incidentally, the Shekh, in his commentary, says something very similar. He says that Mordechai understood. He doesn't even go into dreams and prophecies. He says, A wise person could be even more powerful or more profound than a, a prophet. So Mordechai understood that this didn't happen by accident. He said, Everything Protest, the divine designer was too overwhelming. He said, There's gotta be a bigger plan. Things don't just happen. If things don't just happen, and there's a bigger plan going on over here, Mardechai said, I I I have the sense it must be that Esther's going to be called upon for something great to save the Jewish people. But in that case, what does Esther need to have? She has to have anonymity. Otherwise it won't work. So according to these approaches, Esther was Mordechai was quiet because he wanted Esther in that position, which is a different perspective from what Rashi he said. It doesn't have to be a contradiction. Could be Mordechai made all kinds of calculations, and the question is which is the most prominent one. Well, we have different opinions which is the most prominent, but he, he made multiple calculations of why this would be a better idea. Ybenezer himself says that if Esther would say she's Jewish, Ahasuerus should make sure to convert her, and he would say to her, "Violate Shabbos, eat the pork, have the cheeseburger." Because the king didn't want a Jewish wife. Not <laughs> from a Jewish wife. What does he need an Orthodox wife for? But if she doesn't know he's Jewish, what's well, she going to say? I'm a, I'm a vegetarian. I don't like meat. I force you to eat I don't like meat. Uh, come, we're going to go on an excursion today. I'm not feeling well today. How does he know it's Shabbos? So, and it's a funny thing, you know, when people, when other people are observant, if you tell them you're a vegetarian, they say, oh, that's very nice. Tell them to meet Kosher, they attack you. <laughs> it's a crazy thing. People get all upset about it. Yeah. So, anyway, going back to Esther, Mordechai felt that the best way for Esther to be able to get away with what she's doing is that she shouldn't know, Achishorea should not know he's Jewish. And that way she'll be able to keep some of the mitzvahs. The moment he knows she's Jewish, Achishorea says, Huh, that's what it is. I'm not playing games like that. My wife is not going to be Jewish. And he would make her do a sins and, and, and convert her even. Marshaw says that... Mordechai knew the nature of politics. The whole Megillah is full of politics. And he said this was a crazy situation where everybody was plotting against everybody else and the politics was so thick you can cut it with a knife. And Mordecai said once they know she's Jewish, she's doomed. Everybody hates the Jews. A Jewish queen? Who wants a Jewish queen? They would plot against her from all sides. They would frame her. It would go down in a very bad way. So Mordechai said this to say nothing. What happened was, every nation claimed that Esther was from them. The National Enquirer every day had a new headlines. <laughs> which nation she's from? 127 nations all adopted Esther as their own. And with compelling theories and proof that Esther, the mystery queen, she's really from our country. And this way, nobody was against her. Why? Because everybody was hoping that she would be theirs. And this way he saved Esther's life. That's what Masha says. The Manas HaLevi, which is the Alkabats, he says in the name of the Akedas Yitzchak, he says like this. He says, if Esther would be forced into compromising positions of Yiddishkeit because her life is in danger, she's allowed to do it. Especially if it's in privacy. It's in private. Life's in danger. But if Esther would be forced to violate the Torah, then the Gemara says, we are duty-bound to give our very lives even for a Jewish custom. The Gemara even says for arkas of the Masonah, even for the changing his shoelaces. You don't change that. So he said if, if Esther is known that she's Jewish, when the duress the will be put upon her, she'll have no choice. She'll have, to, she'll have to capitulate. she'll have to give her life. She won't be able to capitulate. But here it wasn't Ahasuerus wanted her to violate the Torah. He wanted her to do whatever he wanted her to do. So, so it, was, it was a private thing with Ahasuerus forced her. She was not duty-bound by Halacha because Ahasuerus didn't have any intention of getting her to violate any mitzvahs, which is very similar to what the, what the Ibn Ezra says. Anyway, you have all these different reasons. Clearly, many of these reasons, Ahasuerus and Mordechai did definitely not share with Esther. Maybe some she did, maybe some she didn't. But the important thing is that Megillah emphasizes why did she not do it? Because Esther Megedes es Melarata There you have it. Your Ben and you're Esther the Tzadikas, Esther the Chassid. Two amazing virtues about Esther. Now we have an opinion of Rebbe Nachman. Rebbe says Hadassah Shema. No, her name was Hadassah. So if her name is Hadassah, of Esther. He says this. Is not about Esther's righteousness, but this gives you an understanding of the story. This, because this embellishes, this gives us a new profound, that she's called Esther. The nations of the world would call her like a beauty queen. Rashi says, Everybody says she's beautiful. But this is why everybody should appreciate a beauty. Usually with a beauty, one person thinks it's beautiful, somebody else doesn't think it's beautiful. Here, everybody thought she was beautiful. That's itself a miracle. That everybody was on the same page when it came to Esther. So therefore, because everybody thought she was a star, everybody thought she was Shein the beautiful as the moon. So that's why it, this, the, the, again, I want to emphasize, this is, this is scripture, this is psukim, this is not a history book, it's not a story book. Everywhere there is holy, the holy of holies. Everything has a story to tell, everything has a message, everything has a metaphor, everything is a direction. It's Torah. So here we have Torah. Number one, the peak of Esther's virtue, Hadassah, Tzedkarnas. Number two, Esther's Tzidkis, her, her Hasidus, her willingness to do what Mordechai said, regardless, her bittel her self-abnegation of Mardechai. Number three, this is a, a name that tells you about the miracle, because the whole story of Purim is an unbelievable miracle that's never identified as a miracle. It's the non-miracle miracle. It never looks like a miracle, right? And that's the whole point of Purim. How godliness Camouflages itself, and we don't even see a miracle. Only when you put all the pieces together and connect all the dots, the stunning, miraculous picture emerges from many, many different episodes. But only when they're all linked together. So here's another link in the story. You know why we're calling Esther? It's part of the miracle. Everybody thought she's beautiful. Everybody went, 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 went wild over Esther. Benazai says, no, the other opinion. Esther Shema, her original name is Esther. So why would she call the Dasa? Shalai Arucha, because she was neither tall nor short, elabainenus. She was, so to speak, average. Kahadasa, like a hadas, like the sif sifchom says, a hadas is an average. It's average. It doesn't grow tremendously tall. It's not tiny. It's an average. It's an average bush. So what's the virtue of that? Like, what does that mean? So the mashah says like this. The mashah says, Esther was the most virtuous person in that she was perfectly balanced. And she, could, she got along with anybody, anywhere. This is Esther's nature. She didn't stick out. She, wasn't, she wasn't, didn't find herself at, at odds with other people. People are very tall, everybody else is shorter. People are very short, everybody else is taller. Esther could fit in with everybody. This is the essence of charisma. The most amazing ability to connect to people in a phenomenal way. And, and uh, the marshal says, we know that when Hannah the mother of Shmuel HaNavi, when she prayed for a child, she said, Lama Secha, zera anoshim." You'll give to your servant the seed of human. A people kind seed. <laughs> so what, what does that mean? And that she shouldn't give birth to a rhinoceros? Like, what, what, what does it mean, zera anoshim? <laughs> what, what was she asking for? Was it common in Israel people giving birth to animals? So the Chachamim explain in the Gemara and Brachas, Zera Shemuv Anashem Seed, progeny that can get along with everybody. That's the greatest virtue. A person can get along with everybody. Esther had this magnetic personality. She managed to get along with everybody. Now, understand that in the Persian palace you couldn't get along with anybody. Everybody was plotting. And Ahasuerus was endlessly creating this balance of power. Making one guy powerful and killing this guy and then killing that guy. Here he got rid of the queen because of the imbalance of power. So the fact that Esther managed to get along with everybody is extraordinary and even borderline miraculous. So again, I want to, guess to suggest then we have basically two approaches to the name change of Esther. One approach is the approach of Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda, both of whom say that it speaks about the virtue of Esther. As I described it to you, one like the Hadas, the Tzaddikim, the Ben, one like the Evid, one like the Self-Abnegation, the Chassid. According to Nehemiah and Ben Azai, it's not about Esther's virtues, it's about the miraculous nature of the situation. So how did they describe that? So, Nehemiah says because everybody thought she was beautiful. And Ben Azai says because she had charisma, because she could get along with everybody. Both of them were extraordinary feats in an environment that was toxic and didn't allow for this to happen. It's a very political environment. And yet... Esther managed to be above it all. Everybody loved Esther. She was the people's princess. <laughs> and so, this gives us now, we, we have an understanding, we know why Mordechai self-exiled, and we also have an understanding of <coughs> Esther's name change. Now tonight, really, I was planning to teach you about raising Esther. That was even the name of, original name of tonight's class, but we have not gotten there. So, we're going to break for this evening. And In our next class, we're going to talk about raising Esther, who raised Esther, what was Esther to Mordechai, and so on and so forth.